If you have your Bibles, I would like for you to turn to the 17th chapter of the book of John. The 17th chapter of the book of John. I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn to that passage. We're going to be dealing with it, not just today, but the days ahead. The 17th chapter of the book of John. I would like to bring, as God permits, a series of sermons on this chapter entitled The Lord's Intercessory Prayer. The Lord's Intercessory Prayer. It is not enough for me to preach it. If you do not follow along, in the scripture as we speak. The 17th chapter of the gospel of John. You say, well, Brother Cozart going to preach a series on John 17. That's right. You say, well, why don't you just preach a single sermon? It's not all that many verses, about 26 verses. Just preach a single sermon on John 17. And uh, then we get past it in one Sunday. Well, there's a reason why I'm preaching a series of sermons, if the Lord directs in that way. Because in this chapter, it is loaded, loaded with many precious doctrines and many, many great truths that many Baptists have omitted in their theology. It gives us more than we can chew And it gives us more than we can digest in 40 minutes on Sunday morning. That's why I want to deal with it as long as God furnishes the fuel and the endeavor to do so. Please do not confuse the subject of this series with the subject on the model prayer. The model prayer is the prayer that Jesus Christ prayed in Luke 11, 1 through 2. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. On that particular occasion, the disciples came and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And our Lord answered it by saying, When you pray, say. When you pray, say. Now, if you say it, it's not the Lord preaching it and teaching it, but you are following a model. Therefore, therefore it's called the model prayer. It comes before, incidentally, the 17th chapter of John. Do not confuse the subject of this series with Gethsemane's prayer, in which our Lord prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That came after John chapter 17. I believe the greatest recorded prayer, and this is my opinion, the greatest recorded prayer by man was done by David in the 51st Psalm. 
I've never read a prayer prayed by anybody that moves my soul like what David prayed when he prayed, Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Many, many great prayers in the Bible. This, however, is the greatest prayer. It is an intercessory prayer of our Lord going to Calvary, and he does it just outside of Gethsemane. It is also the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament. And basically it is divided into three parts. Number one, Christ prays for himself, verses 1 through 8. Number two, Christ prays for his apostles, verses 9 through 19. And number three, Christ prays for his church, those who would come to believe on Christ through the ministry of his apostles, verses 20 through 26. Martin Luther had a a whole lot to say when he was on this earth. He made a classic statement when he made this statement. This is truly, speaking of John 17, beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. The Lord opens up the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father. And he pours them out so the sounds are so honest and so simple. It is so deep, so rich, and so wide that no man can truly fathom it. John 17. This is a perfect prayer. Every prayer that the Lord Jesus ever prayed was a perfect prayer. Philip Melanchthon, somewhere in the vicinity of the ministry of Martin Luther, made this statement. There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. The eminent Scottish reformer, John Knox, had this chapter read to him every day during the last days of his illness in which he died. The writer John Brown says the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John is without doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. And we must not leave out J.C. Ryle. Mr. Ryle says this chapter we have now begun. It is the most remarkable chapter in the Bible. It stands alone and there's nothing like it. The mediatorial and intercessory work of Christ is by far the most overlooked and ignored work in man's redemption 
there are many phases or many aspects of God redeeming a sinner. And the mediatorial intercessory work of Christ is by far the most overlooked and ignored work in man's redemption. Moses hit on it. Back in Exodus chapter number 32, don't think he really understood everything he was talking about. But in Exodus chapter number 32, when Israel had sinned by building this golden calf, the Bible says in that reference, verse 30 and following, it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet, Moses is speaking to God now. Moses said, yet now if you will forgive them their sin. And there's a break. As though Moses wanted to interject another thought. If you will forgive them their sin. But if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. Now, Moses was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who did that very thing on the cross of Calvary. When he prayed to the Father, Father, if you cannot forgive people of what they've sinned and how they've sinned, blot me out of thy book. And that's precisely what happened when Christ prayed on the cross of Calvary, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, willing to lay down his life and die for the sins of God's people? That's mediation. That's mediation. We highly emphasize the cross as the sacrifice offered for our sins, and rightly so. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my soul rolled away. We highly emphasize the empty tomb as God's approval of that sacrifice for sin. And we should. He arose. He arose. Christ Jesus arose from the grave. We highly emphasize the ascension as necessary for the coming of the Holy Spirit to convict man of his need of salvation. And we should. We highly emphasize the second coming of Christ as the final aspect of our redemption. But we almost bypass what the Savior does in keeping us saved. Not just saving us, but keeping us saved. Namely, intercession for us before the Father. He hung on the cross and in six hours time he was interceding for his people. 
Even in the tomb, my dear friends, he visited the spirits in prison, interceding for people. He made appearances for 40 days and 40 nights after the resurrection, interceding for people. And he's been interceding for his elect for the last 2,000 years, every day. He that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And he that keepeth Israel is the Lord Jesus Christ. He never slumbers, he never sleeps, continually for the last 2,000 years, busy making intercession for the sins of God's people. We could know nothing about eternal salvation were it not for the intercessory work, the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through this prayer that we stay saved. Let me repeat that. It is through this prayer that we stay saved. This prayer did not pass away as soon as its words were uttered, but retains a perpetual efficacy every day of our life. He intercedes for us. Even the Apostle John wrote about it in his epistle, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. But what happens when we do? But if we sin, we have an advocate. We have a mediator. We have an intercessor, an intercessor. We have an advocate that maketh intercession for us. And one writer puts it with groanings which cannot be uttered. No wonder Hebrews 7.25 says he ever liveth to make intercession for us. So what does the Lord do in heaven? He makes intercession for us. And he's quite busy got a lot of people who know the Lord that need interceding for every day of their life. I do not know who wrote this, but I share it with you. It moved my heart. It is entitled, He Intercedes. He Intercedes. This great wonder... How can it be my Lord doth intercede for me? Before the Father he doth stand, ever pleading for his blood-bought band. He knows my thoughts and failures too, for he was tempted like me and you. He's my high priest, holy and high. I can to him ever draw nigh. And boldly plead my cause and need, for he, for me, doth intercede. Sin's debt he paid to save my soul. Through his shed blood I am made whole. Now my high priest ever stands to plead, and for me he ever intercedes. Wonder of wonders. Can it be Christ the Lord ever prays for me? Not 
never prays for me, but ever prays for me. In your darkest hour, in your moment of doubt and fear, there is one who never ceases to pray for you. The Lord, our blessed intercessor, looking at John chapter 17, let's notice the reading of it. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father... Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. The context of John chapter number 17 is a part of the upper room discourse. Many, many times... During the ministry of Jesus Christ for three years, the many messages, the many sermons, the many lessons that he taught fall into a particular category. For instance, there is the Sermon on the Mount, and there's no other sermon like it. In Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. And then you have the Olivet Discourse, an entirely different time of preaching and teaching about certain things. But this John 17 is a part of the upper room discourse, which actually begins in John 13. Now the counter-reference to that is Mark 14, verses 12 through 17. Though not everything recorded in John 13 through 17 actually happened in the upper room, as we shall see, but it's still a part of the upper room discourse, which began in the upper room that concluded with the Lord's Prayer, John 17. For instance, in the first chapter of the upper room discourse is chapter 13. Three things jump off the page at you if you read chapter 13. 
Number one is the observance of the Passover meal. Jesus told his disciples to find a place where they could observe the Passover. The second thing is the washing of the disciples' feet. And the third thing is the institution of the Lord's Supper. You find all of that in the 13th chapter of John. When you get to the 14th chapter of John, the Lord Jesus announces his departure. Most Baptists are familiar with that. When Christ said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. He announces his departure. But also in that 14th chapter, he introduces his disciples to the person of the Holy Ghost. Looking at chapter 14, he introduces the Holy Spirit to these disciples. He says in verse 16, chapter 14, I'll pray the Father. He'll give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. And he tells us in verse 26, the comforter is the Holy Spirit. In chapter number 15, they leave the upper room en route to going over to Gethsemane. And en route on that short journey, the Lord teaches them about the vine and the branches. It begins in chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches, and on it goes. In chapter 16, Christ explains to the disciples the work of the coming Holy Spirit. In that 16th chapter, verse 13, speaking about the Holy Spirit, when He is come... He will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak of himself, and whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. You say, well now, why is all of this necessary? Because you don't and will never know the Bible if you don't believe in contextual consideration that the Bible's verses always depend on the context in which they are written. That's what's wrong with the Camelite church. Acts 2.38. Their Bible consists of one verse. Acts 2.38. You've got to be baptized to be saved. You're dumb if you do not consider the context in which a located, a located verse is found. In chapter number 17, just before he gets to Gethsemane, outside of Gethsemane, our Lord prays this prayer of intercession. And for the remainder of our time, I want us to focus on verse 1 of the prayer. Again, what does verse 1 say, John 17, these words spake Jesus. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, thy hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. Have you ever wondered why Christ prayed in front of his disciples? 
there is such a thing as private prayer, you know. On one occasion, the Lord said, when you get ready to deal with certain things in your life, enter into your prayer closet and you talk to your Father in secret. Why did Christ pray before his disciples? Maybe for two reasons. To give us a copy of his intercession. It's one thing to hear it, another thing to read it, and they wrote down what they heard. Number two is to command the duty of prayer. If he prayed, how much more should we pray? If our Lord prayed, how much more should we pray? It begins by saying, These words spake Jesus. Up to this point, Christ has spoken to his disciples on behalf of the Father. You want to know what the Father's like? This is what the Father looks like. This is what the Father does. This is what the Father decrees. Up to this point, Christ spoke about to his disciples about on behalf of the Father. But now in John 17, he speaks to the Father on behalf of the disciples. He tells God the Father what the disciples are like. Now these words, these words that those two words that begin chapter 17, that's one of those things, you've got to put it in reverse and go back to chapter 16, verses 32 and 33. Those are these words that are in reference to. In that little reference there, the last two verses of chapter number 16, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, you'll be scattered every man to his own, you will leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. We're getting ready for some hard times. Christ is speaking these words to his disciples. You're going to be scattered everywhere. You're going to be facing some persecution and some trials. Verse 33, These things I've spoken unto you, in me you might have peace even though there's a scattering coming. And dear friends, when Christ was put on that cross, there may have been one or two disciples present, but they all forsook him and fled. He said, however, that in these things you might have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And chapter 17 is not the inspired word of God. The wording, chapter 17 is not the inspired Word of God. There were no chapter divisions when the Word of God was put together. I have overcome the world. These words! What words? What he just got through saying. These words spake Jesus. Up to this point, these words. Now, he lifted his eyes to heaven, according to the text in verse 1. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Two things he reminds us of. Number one, the direction in which to pray. We don't pray up. We pray down. And we shouldn't pray down. Every prayer we offer must be directed up. And the second thing is the person to which the prayer is made. Let me speak for a moment on that. The direction in which to pray. 
In Psalm 25, verse number 1, the Bible says, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Now, two things can happen to your soul. Sometimes we have uplifted souls. Sometimes we have downtrodden souls. Downtrodden souls. We're to lift up our prayers to God, the lifting up of our soul to Him. And then in Psalm 123, verse number 1, Unto thee lift I up my eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. As we pray, we lift up our eyes to the one who dwells in the heavens. And one of my favorites, Psalm 121, verse 1, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from which cometh my help. That's the direction we should pray in. We ought never to enter into a conversation with the Lord telling him what a hard time we're having. And we just think we'll go out and eat some worms and die. No, we're to lift up our soul to him. Upward, upward, upward. The person to which prayer is made. Please notice the Lord Jesus is not praying to the Holy Spirit. That's so important. Don't take that for granted. He does not pray to the Holy Spirit, nor does he pray to himself. But he prays to the Father. By the way, in case you forgot, you have a, you have a Father. You have a Heavenly Father. Our Father who art in heaven. The entire prayer is built on the relationship of God the Father and God the Son, Father-Son relationship. When he hung on the cross, he said, Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But he also prayed when he became sin for us on the cross, he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Father-Son relationship. Father-Son relationship. What did he say? Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. This is the final time the Lord would refer to this particular hour. The hour is now come. It's listed nine times only in the book of John. Isn't that strange? Mine hour is not yet come. Mine hour is not yet come. Scrutinize this with me in John chapter 2 verse 4. John chapter 2 verse 4. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Well, what had Mary done? She came to him and said, Lord, we run out of Jack Daniels. I mean, we don't have enough wine around here. What are we going to do? And the Lord said, what do I have to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Our Lord makes it clear he did not come to perform miracles. Did he perform miracles? You better believe he did. And every miracle was perfection and it worked 
Nothing he did failed. Everything he did was right. But he didn't come to perform miracles. Look at John chapter 7, verse number 30. John chapter 7, verse number 30. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. No one could prevent the Lord Jesus from going to Calvary, not even the devil himself. Look, if you will, at John chapter number 8, verse number 20. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. His earthly ministry could not be interrupted, and he could never be sidetracked. He came for a purpose, and he would not stop until he fulfilled that purpose by doing what the Father had sent him to do, called mine hour. Mine hour. In John chapter number 12, verse number 23. John chapter 12, verse number 23. Please notice, Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And that hour would begin with suffering, not just hanging on the cross, but all of the persecution and rejection he had to get through and go through to get to the cross. That hour would begin with suffering. He says, it's come. It's time now for the suffering to begin. And in John chapter 12, verse 27, it's mentioned twice. Now is my soul troubled And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But no, for this cause came I unto this hour. It presents his purpose for coming to this earth. Jesus Christ did not come to this earth just to preach, just to teach. He did not come to this earth just to impress anybody He came to this earth to die. That was his purpose. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, and they can only be saved if he dies. And then in chapter 13, verse number 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew, he knew, now at this point in time he knows, that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He knew it was the time of his death. Chapter 16, verse 32, and we read that just a moment ago. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. And finally in John chapter 17, verse 1, he says, These words spake Jesus, referring to what is completed in verses 32 and 33. Then he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, 
the hour is come. It would be an hour of redemption. It would be an hour of glorification. The hour is come. What's the meaning of the word hour? The hour is come. Well, there's some places in the Bible where it means a literal hour. 60 minutes to an hour. 12 hours to a day. 12 hours to a night. A literal hour. But usually when it is, it's preceded by a number. Let me give you an example of that. In John chapter 19, verse number 14. John 19, verse 14. It says this. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. That's letting you know that it was a certain 60 minute hour. A sixth hour. He said unto the Jews, Behold your kingdom. This does not mean though generally 60 minutes being an hour. But a time period. A period of time. The hour has now come. It refers to the beginning of his suffering and his torture, including in this hour, would be Gethsemane, his arrest, his trial, his scourging, and the cross. And it would also include in this hour that Satan would bruise his heel, but he would crush the head of the serpent. Say, did you remember that? Well, it's been a long time, but it's way over there in the book of Genesis. Chapter number 3, verse number 15. After the fall took place, God served a message for Adam. He served a message for Eve. And then he served a message to the devil. He said in verse 15, chapter 3, Genesis, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it, that's referring to Christ, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The bruising of the heel is a part of that hour. Mine hour is not yet come. Mr. Alexander, in his commentary, gives an example of the hour being a time period, being a time period in John chapter 5, verse 25. John 5, verse 25, being a time period. The Bible says, Verily I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That's not something that happened just like that. That's happening every time a sinner turns by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. The dead are being made alive. That's a time, a good example of, 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 of a time period. Mr. Alexander says it was for this hour, this hour, that the great clock of time was set in motion at first. Some of these statements, I have to read them again and again and again. Sometimes I shake my head and ask the question, what did he say? What did he say? I want to be sure I get this straight. He said this hour, this period of time, it was for this hour that the great clock of time was set in motion at first. Before there was anything, before there was anybody, before there was any creation, it was set way back yonder. 
It was for this hour that the world was created and upheld. It was for this hour heaven's justice waited. In it, sin was made an end of and transgression was finished. In it, the law of God was magnified and made honorable. Holiness was vindicated. Death was slain and God's chosen people were saved with an everlasting salvation when that hour was fulfilled. The hour had come. You conclude it by noticing this, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. Father, glorify me that I may glorify thee. We'll elaborate more on that when we get to it. We'll not do that today, but in verse number 5, he makes a statement of elaboration there. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. Glorifying the Son and glorifying the Father are the same. What do you mean, Pastor? You cannot have one without the other. If we do not glorify the Son, we do not glorify the Father. And if we do not glorify the Father, we do not glorify the Son. If we would glorify God, we must do so by glorifying the Son. We have a world today that has a theology that is so putrid and so empty and so meaningless that people talk so favorably about we have a God, God in heaven, but they don't incorporate the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have a God without Jesus Christ. Glorify thy Son. Our Lord was praying that it would be evident that he was God as well as man. When you glorify God, you're glorifying the Son. Why is that so? He is the God-man. He is the God-man. And the Father would answer this by giving him victory over death and the grave. You remember what the centurion said at the foot of the cross? Truly, this was the Son of God. He recognized this was not just a criminal hanging on that cross. It was God incarnate. And even Thomas, the apostle, said after missing church a week earlier, and the other disciples were telling him how wonderful it was to have the Lord present. He said, I won't believe that he's risen from the dead until I can touch him. And the Lord appeared to him. And he said, go ahead, take your finger and put it in the hole of my hand and take your hand and thrust it into my side. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Let me tell you back to something. Something's wrong with your theology if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he always has been God, and that he always will be God. And he's revealing that in this first verse of the 17th of John. By receiving him back into heaven. And did not the Lord do that? When Christ left the Mount of Olives to go back into heaven, 
Do you think that when Christ got to the door of heaven, he didn't qualify? That maybe he had to call on Simon Peter. Peter, help me get in. No, not at all. What happened in Psalm 24? Let me read it for you. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be ye lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Question, who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And at the ascension, when he left earth, he was admitted to the right hand of God the Father, and he sits at that hand today, making intercession for our sins. And you and me and all of God's elect are to be found in the 17th chapter of the book of John. I hope that this will provide us some incentive to studying this chapter more closely. Let's stand please for prayer.